to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. Welcome to this week's American Bar Association Cyber and Privacy Podcast, The New Frontier, in affiliation with the Thomas R. Klein School of Law at Drexel University. This is your host, Jordan Fisher, and I am very excited to welcome this week two guests to the show, Woody Hartzog and Neil Richards. Woody is Professor of Law and Computer Science at Northeastern University, and Neil is a Koch Distinguished Professor of Law at Washington University School of Law. Woody and Neil, welcome to the show. I don't know which of us should talk first. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure to be here. (laughs) Thanks so much. So I would love for you both to just lightly introduce yourself to the audience, and we'll kick it off first with Neil. Sure. I am, uh, as you mentioned, I I teach at Washington University in St. Louis, uh, not to be confused with the confusingly similar named University of Washington in Seattle or George Washington University in DC, where actually I, both Woody and I study as students, uh, coincidentally enough, um, or Washington Lee University in, in Lexington, Virginia. We're in St. Louis by the arch. I've been on the WashU faculty for almost 20 years. I teach primarily privacy, but I've also taught free speech and a full range of constitutional law courses. And uh, I guess that's, that's probably good enough. Thanks, Woody, we'll kick it over to you. Sure. I'm a professor of law and computer science, as you say, which means that I have an appointment. My tenure home is at the law school, but I also uh, have an appointment at the Corey College of Computer Sciences, which means I teach uh, technology policy issues to lawyers and policy issues to technologists, um, which is a really uh, great intersection to have. And I've been writing about um, privacy and, and technology law and policy issues for about a decade now. Well, this is incredibly exciting to have you both on the show today because there's a breadth of knowledge around privacy, the changes, the evolution of privacy. So I'm really excited to dive into it. And I want to start with a very broad question for both of you, but I'll kick this over first to Neil, as this is taken from your book, Why Privacy Matters. So why should we care about privacy? You know, what are the key questions we should be considering when discussing the importance of privacy? And I know it could probably fill hours so succinctly as possible. Why should we care about privacy? Yeah, I'm going to answer the question at two levels. And, and, and the first level is why as lawyers should we care about privacy? And I'm going to steal a line from my friend Kirk Nara, who runs the privacy practice group at my old law firm, uh, now Wilmer Hale. Uh, which and one is, of our previous guests, actually. <laughs> oh, he, he, he's everywhere. Yeah. Um, as a lawyer, you should only care about privacy if your clients have customers or employees. In other words, every human organization is involved, whether they know it or not, whether they recognize it or not, in the processing of human information. And they're going to have opportunities, yes, but but also potential legal liabilities, some of them very significant, if they're not uh, collecting, handling, uh, and treating that data with with a level of uh, hygiene and care 
and and compliance with really the thicket of of state, federal, uh, foreign, and international legal rules. As human beings, we should care about privacy for the same reason those firms are collecting information, because human information uh, is a subset of information. Information is power, and human information provides power over human beings. That's why uh, technology companies collect data about browsing habits and, and purchases so they, they can send uh, more lucrative and potentially more effective, they would say relevant, but, but more effective and lucrative targeted advertisements. It's why business, it's why governments put CCTV cameras uh, up on street corners and engage in hopefully legally compliant wiretapping of criminal suspects. Um, and it's why parents use baby monitors and and find my friends to monitor the whereabouts of their of their children to hopefully help them not make really dumb and uh, potentially injurious or worse decisions. So so privacy privacy is about power. It 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 is in a very real sense the law of human information, which is one of the building blocks of our digital society. And it's something that everybody, both lawyers and human beings, need to worry about. I love that idea of sort of, you know, information is power. It really, it, that really resonates in today's technology age. Um, Woody, I didn't know what your perspective on is why privacy should matter to us. So Neil said it as good as I ever could have. And, and like a lot of things, I don't stray too far from Neil's take on these things. <laughs> We've been riding together for so long, we tend to sort of have the Vulcan mind meld uh, going on. But I will say yeah, to, that- To be clear, it, it, it's a mutual thing. You know, <laughs> Woody is not like my manservant. No, 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 no. Neil actually copied me by growing out a beard, so. Uh, yeah. This is true. Uh, so uh, I, I will just add that I, have this talk with people a lot as well. And I say, what does it matter if Facebook has all of my data? Or what does it matter if, you know, the government does something, uh, you know, with surveillance that's bad? And I, I say that sometimes at an individual level, you can feel it acutely, but not always. But privacy matters not only because it's a necessary precondition um, for us to flourish as individuals, but without it, we would be lost um, as people in relationships with other people, we would be lost in society, we would be lost as uh, a citizenry, um, and we would be lost as, uh, as someone who um, needs to be able to have the space necessary to find their way. Um, and that's key in a lot of ways. And so uh, there's a lot of different ways to think about privacy. And all of them matter in one way or another in this broad scheme. Yeah, and I hear from sort of what I'm pulling from what you just said is that fundamental component of privacy, right? And the, and the EU approach of it's a fundamental right, which I think that is still somewhat up for debate in the U.S., depending on sort of who you talk to. Um, but it is really important. And I think making it real to people, both in the legal space and then just general individuals is really critical as we head into more and more uses of technology, more and more data that's being generated and then subsequently collected on us. And that leads me to my next question, and, and I'll um, kick this over to Woody first. In your book, Privacy Blueprint, you dive into the role of technologies and dark patterns in eroding our privacy. 
And can you provide some examples? Because we often hear about these dark patterns, but I think it's hard to conceptualize and understand what those actually are and how it impacts either us as individuals or societies on more of that day-to-day basis. Sure. So uh, in the book, I I make the argument that uh, lawmakers and, and people in society should care about design more and how it affects our privacy, that it's it's one of the most powerful forces uh, that act upon our lives. But we don't talk about it as much as we talk about, at least in law and policy circles, as we talk about how companies uh, are collecting and using data, for example, right? But, but the ways in which these technologies are built matter just as much to our privacy, uh, and, in, and in three different ways, actually. So I, in the book, I argue that design is is power because it makes certain realities more or less likely. Design does two things. It sends signals to people, so it it basically informs people about either how the technology is supposed to work or what the terms of the relationship are between the user of the technology and the person who's providing it or administering it. Um, It is everywhere, it's all over the place, so every single artifact that we use, our computers, our pens, our our phones are all uh, the manifestations of thousands or, or hundreds of thousands of individual design decisions, and they're political. So one of the, I think, most pernicious uh, misguided notions that sometimes people operate under is the idea that there's no such thing, uh, that, that uh, technologies are neutral. Uh, and I argue in the book that there's no such thing as neutral technologies because every design decision makes a certain reality more or less likely. And this I spend a lot of time in the book talking about, as you say, this notion of dark patterns, which are manipulative uh, user interfaces and design choices that manifest in code or hardware um, that trick people into making decisions or taking actions that are against their best interests, that are adverse to them somehow, and are actually in the interest of the uh, of the trusted party or the, or the designer. Um, and there's several different ways in which we see dark patterns all the time, but we haven't gotten used to thinking about them as dark patterns. There are two main kinds of dark patterns. One kind of dark pattern is one that attempts you to uh, attempts to get you to reveal something or make a particular kind of choice. So you think, for example, the I agree button that is highlighted in blue and it's shining and it's like, I agree. And then there's the no thank you button that is in grayscale and tucked away at the side. Um, And that's clearly trying to channel you towards one um, choice that is legally significant because it's trying to get you to give consent uh, or waiver to some kind of practice or one that tries to get you to expose yourself more by agreeing to, for example, geolocation tracking or something along those lines. Um, And then there are these dark patterns that try to keep you from doing something or frustrate you um, by throwing on costs or making something very difficult. Uh, So for example, if you've ever tried to cancel essentially any account on the internet, uh, you probably are likely to find that it was harder to do than signing up for it. Uh, and there's a reason why. They want to make it difficult for you to leave. And they, we call this the fish book, right? That it's easy to go on and hard to, to uh, come out. Um, I've got a good example about that, actually. I was uh, I deleted the Facebook app from my phone last week because I had just uh, had enough of uh, 
of, of that particular company's uh, reckless disregard for, for human values at all levels and for the integrity of our democracy and for truth and, and a bunch of other things I can go on about. Anyway, I deleted, in a, in a fit of peak, I deleted the Facebook app from my phone, didn't delete my account. Um, but Facebook must have known this. So they started sending me texts. Hey, your cousin just posted an update. Um, uh, and I, I texted stop. Um, but I, I did, you know, the, the reason I deleted the phone is I did not want Facebook very easy to look at. Um, I certainly didn't want them sending me texts. Um, and so because it was SMS, I, they had to give me the option. So I texted stop and they stopped doing that. And so then they started sending me emails. Your cousin's doing this, or your your former colleague has just posted an update. Uh, and so I, it was an email, so I went to the bottom to unsubscribe. Um, and then, of course, uh, it wouldn't let me into my Facebook account without signing in. I mean, they, they could have processed the the unsubscribe button just like any other email, right? But they 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 deliberately created this dark pattern to try to get me not just to not delete, but to get into the app where they could serve me with with a whole bunch of emotionally laden. Uh, dark pattern uh, manipulation. Like, are you sure you want to delete your your friends? Will be so sad to see you go, and and you you will miss interacting with them. So I, I don't know if, if if that's what you're talking about, Woody. Is that is that a fix? That's exactly what I'm talking about. Exactly. They wanted to they want to make it super easy to sort of go back in, but hard to leave. Right? And they they sort of throw costs on over and over. And they and once you start seeing dark patterns, they are everywhere. Um, they're all over the internet and the law regulates them very poorly, if at all. Uh, privacy law, Neil and I were, were talking about this a few years ago. Privacy law can be boiled down to essentially three rules right now. One is do not lie. One is do not harm. And the one is follow the fair information practices. Um, and all three of those do a very poor job of regulating uh, dark patterns because uh, sometimes technical truth, right? It, it, it's not deceptive, um, but it's still manipulative and 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 harmful and dangerous. Um, and sometimes the harms aren't enough to register under our traditional do not harm rules, right? They want either uh, money lost or some sort of severe emotional damage or or uh, some other sort of major uh, significant interference. But dark patterns are death by a thousand cuts. And the law does a pretty poor job of actually trying to regulate those. And that really leads nicely into my next question, which is what is the role of law in protecting privacy or maybe specifically dark patterns? Um, but you know, where do we see those gaps and what are the opportunities to move forward and sort of balancing that we're gonna have new technologies, but then we have users who need to be protected from being violated by those new technologies. So, so maybe we could not call them users, right? The only okay. other industry that calls its customers users are drug dealers. Um, <laughs> I mean, and it's it's not. I mean, I, I'm I'm teasing you a little bit, Jordan, but but I think alongside uh, the the building of these dark patterns, the, the, there's dark patterns in our language, right? The 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 technology industry in this uh, you know terra incognita of the internet has been very effective at labeling the places on the map, as it were, with all sorts of words uh, that are self-serving and that are that are Orwellian in the small sense of the word, right? Orwell politics, the English language, Orwell newspeak here. Um, they know that language is powerful. They know that a new a new terrain is something that can that, that is up for grabs and up for carving up 
and describing in a way that is that that is self-serving. And so it's interesting that m- many technology companies have have taken on using the word user, which implies no reciprocal obligation, rather than any of the dozens of other words that the English language and our law has generated over the centuries to describe reciprocal relationships of the sort that we have with technology companies. So client, customer, patient, passenger, guest, et cetera, et cetera, right? User is a very hands-off and distance term. So, so we can we could perhaps the law first that the law could take would be to to relabel some of these relationships for for what they really are in terms that recognize the real vulnerability that human beings have when they uh, participate in the services uh, when they when they use the products that and services that these companies offer. Do you do you like the term data subject in GDPR or consumer in CCPA? Do you feel strongly either way about that terminology? I don't I don't love any of those terms to be honest. I think they're they're better than user. Uh, consumer is is a pretty good term, right? We're, we we can talk intelligibly about consumer protection law, um, drawing on the tradition of of twentieth century regulation to to protect human beings in society, but even consumer drives us in a, in a relatively narrow economic lens, a consumer of a service or a consumer of a good um, that, that fails to reflect, I think, some of the, the broader importances of privacy that Woody was talking about a little while ago. Um, so, so data subject is pretty good, um, but, it, but I mean, we don't wake, wake up in the morning and go, you know, what is the data subject here going to do today? Um, you know, we, we and, and even then it it it's sort of alienating and 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 European. Um, but it's it's better than user, um, right? U- users buy drugs and then the, the the dealer doesn't care if they die in a ditch. Um, at least a data subject, you know, from the right context loops you into the broader frameworks of, of European data protection law, um, which which as you know recognizes both privacy and data protection as fundamental constitutional rights with duties that extend not just to uh, on the part of governments, but also extending horizontally to, to, to private actors as well. So customer is nice. Yeah. Human is nice. People <laughs> I would say human is people. nice. Uh, I can live with consumer. Yeah. I do think that it's a good reminder that there is a human on the other end of a lot of these. So, um, well, I think the, the big reminder, right, for lawyers working in technology is an elementary lesson from the first day of law school, which is words matter. The words we use to describe the world, the words we use to describe legal concepts have practical consequences for for all of the parties involved. And the lawyers for technology companies, of course, recognize this, which is why they've encouraged their clients, not their users, incidentally, but their clients, they've encouraged their clients to to use the word user as much as possible to avoid um, any appearance of of legal obligation. And I think that's actually really bad lawyering. I think it's it's good lawyering in the short term if if your goal is just to minimize short-term liability. But if you want to build longer term trust, if you want to build a, a sustainable information relationship in which your human customers don't hate you, which is the feeling that m- many human customers of internet services feel with respect to some of their services. And I think 
Facebook probably pops up at the top of the list of services that are that are used and and despised at, at the same. There's a lot of self-loathing among users of users of, of social media, self-described users. But I think that is a mistake because the words the words do matter. The words have consequences, and and the, and words can describe social relationships with legal consequences. So so you asked about what what can the law do. One of the things that Woody and I have been have been thinking about for the last seven or eight years is what would a different legal regime that that builds trust in the information relationships between human beings and technology companies look like? What would it take to get to a place where there's actual verifiable, reasonable trust by humans towards companies such that those humans actually want to share more information and really invest in the relationship rather than uh, uh, use it only as much as as they dare. And and we've thought of a, a few things. The We've written a series of papers about the, the principles of trust. We, we've talked about honesty and we've talked about confidentiality and discretion. We've talked about protection uh, from, from third parties. But the most important of these concepts that we've settled on is the idea of a duty of loyalty. And um, we, we think that under the right circumstances, uh, a the imposition of, of duties of loyalty on large technology platforms with respect to their, their human customers uh, could actually not just better protect those humans, but by creating sustainable long-term relationships in which there is an absence of betrayal and value for all parties could actually be beneficial for both the technology platforms and the human beings in the long run. And before people think, oh, this is just a couple of pie in the sky academics here, right? Let, let me offer two examples. One, our law has, has imposed duties of loyalty for centuries in relationships characterized by vulnerability. And since our audience here are lawyers, all of our audience owe duties of loyalty to their, to their, is there, they, do we call them users or clients? I'm not, I think they're clients <laughs> still, to their clients, right? Um, and that creates sustainable relationships and it builds trust and, and, and value. And, and the other is if we think about long-term information relationships with technology companies, uh, I've had relationships with both Apple and Microsoft since the 1980s. Um, actually, I think Apple was 1990 when I got my, my first Macintosh. Um, I've been married for 30 years and I've had a relationship with these technology companies longer than I've been married. Um, and I think it's because those two companies in particular, perhaps because they sell things for money rather than offering things for data and, and having to sort of recoup money on the back end through uh, what to some people could look like underhanded trickery. I think that's why you can have these long-term relationships where there is a sense of loyalty um, and reciprocal obligation. And these relationships, before, some of the pushback that we have when we introduce this concept is they say, well, this is not really a relationship of trust in the same way that you trust, say, a romantic partner or your attorney. But if you think about the characteristics of these relationships, there's nothing like them in the world in terms of the uh, extent of our exposure to them. So these tech companies know more about us than most people that we will ever meet um, these we interact with these companies far more frequently. We look at our phone and use the apps on our phone multiple times a day, maybe an hour. Um, we uh, in, ostensibly have these relationships 
in perpetuity, right? So, so as Neil just said, these relationships are meant to last forever. Um, and they're completely asymmetrical in terms of uh, power relationships. So we don't get to design any of these relationships at all. We are completely subjected to the way in which these user interfaces are built to structure the choices. It's not as though we get some text box where we get to type in, dear Apple, here are the terms of our relationship. I think we need to have a talk, right? Like Apple tells us what the deal is or Facebook or whoever, and we just have to go along with it. And so these, I think, are exactly the kinds of um, relationships where there's an extreme power differential, an extreme vulnerability. They go on forever and they're in they're, completely embedded in our lives such that it's justified, I think, to have a, uh, a legal framework built to make them sustainable and trustworthy. Just like our law has done for centuries with other duties right. of loyalty in a variety of contexts, not just lawyers and, and, and doctors, but, but shareholders and, and trustees, etc. I think one thing that a lot of people think the right legal response here would be would be to put those those pesky users again to to put them back in control of personal information and i think this is this is a really misleading uh uh way of thinking about the problem because we can't rem- think about think about your passwords right we we can't remember all of our passwords for all of the services we use how are we supposed to remember 15, 20, 30 constantly changing privacy settings and how those relate to long boilerplate privacy policies and what the consequences of those would be for us in practice. Uh, Control is overwhelming. Um, Second, control is an illusion because they don't give us the choices we really want, which is stop tracking me everywhere I go on the internet or let me opt out of surveillance-based advertising. Um, those choices are never given. They're only the choices that the companies choose to give. And again, as Woody mentioned before, these interfaces are also highly fertile ground for the deployment of, of dark patterns and nudges to get us to do what they want. Speaking of which, the third problem with, with control is it really completes a trap of, of, of the overwhelming nature of these choices. The companies know that these choices are overwhelming. They know that when you click on a web page and you want to read a news article, maybe about the the Ukraine crisis or, or or about COVID, you don't want to adjust your privacy settings. You don't want to tweak your cookies. You just want to go through. So what do you do? Do you want to adjust your cookies? No, I'm going to click through. But then, and this is the the, the magic, the the devious devious magic of of this approach. Afterwards, you did have a chance to adjust your cookies. You could have technically done it even if it would have taken you 15 minutes when you just wanted to read a three-minute article. But because we were given the, the opportunity to adjust, no matter how illusory or impractical that choice might have been, uh, we feel a little bit guilty. And so we feel that it's our fault we didn't take those steps to protect our privacy. Um, and I think that that's really the, 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 the cruel and, and delusional trap that, that control is. Um, so control is not the answer. Control as technology companies would say, does not scale. But you know what does scale? Loyalty, weirdly enough. I grew up in the, in England, and uh, one of the most beloved institutions in, in England, apart from the Premier League, um, is the National Health Service. Uh, and the National Health Service has 60 million patients. 
to whom it owes duties of loyalty. And if that's not an example of, of, of duties of loyalty scaling in a modern, advanced, technological, data-rich environment, I don't know what is. Control, on the other hand, is an illusion. Yeah, and I think what's, it really resonates, the duty of loyalty, because as you said, it's not a new concept, right? We're not coming up with something new. We're just applying it in this context and making sure we recognize sort of this relationship. And I think that this is something that has gained some traction, not anything officially, but I know there's been a lot of discussion around, can we create, some people use the word fiduciary duty. I know in New York, there was some a lot of conversations around this. Um so I want to sort of ask, um, as we as we um, wrap up here, you know, what are those critical next steps that you see in privacy law in the next two to three years? I think looking any further than that is almost like looking into a crystal ball, although probably two years is looking into a crystal ball. But with this idea that you have, I mean, what do you see as those critical next steps? Is it pushing this idea? Is it, do you see a federal privacy law? I mean, there's so much discussion on sort of what's going to come next in the privacy law space. I don't know which who which one of yeah. you wants to start first. I mean, what, uh, if you want to kick it off, <laughs> I'll go. Yeah. So, uh, as to, to hear Neil talk, what I realize we've been doing in this podcast is we've been articulating the three lies of privacy, and the three lies of privacy. The first of which he articulated is this idea that privacy is about putting people in control of their information. Um, so, the the most important thing that we do is no matter what goes forward at the state or the federal level, privacy simply can't be conceptualized in terms of chucking a bunch of control of people so much that they choke on it. Um, and that it has to be um, about uh, uh, broader issues, right? So moving towards loyalty and, and trust. Two, the second line of privacy um, that's built into it is that our legal regimes need to accommodate all technological advances, right? As though like, you know, technology is some sort of manifest destiny that we have to obtain and it's not something that people create um, and we create it and we can control it. And so um, moving past the idea that the best way to solve these problems is just do an impact assessment. Right. That, oh, well, if we if you get someone's permission or you do a risk balancing analysis, then that's all that's necessary internally. Um, and we see we need to start exploring hard rules, substantive bans, substantive prohibitions. Um, and then the final one is the final lie that Neil's been talking about is this notion that privacy is just about you. What's the worst that could happen to you? But privacy is about us us as a relationship, us as a population. And so any frameworks that move forward, any legislation needs to move past this individualistic notion of privacy based around consent and data subject rights where you delete the information or you tell them not to do things because it's only about you and thinking in terms of relationships and social goods and the way that, that um, uh, people are vulnerable within relationships and the way that your information can be used to harm um, someone else. And so I think that if we move past the three lies of privacy, then at least in the in the next five years, then that's going to be a big enough lifter in itself. But that's what's important. The three lives of privacy. I uh, I think that, that there's a ring to that for sure. Well, I want to thank you both for coming on with me today. This was really fascinating to dive into these topics. I always like to ask all of my guests the same question to end, which is what is the most recent book you've read on cyber, privacy, law, technology, and uh, that you would recommend to the audience. So Neil, if you want to go first. Right. Well, we we, we were joking about this. I, I'm teaching a new course in advanced privacy at WashU this semester. And I, 
actually assigned my new book, Why Privacy Matters. So um, uh, I almost would have to answer my own book, but that would sound grossly self-indulgent. Thankfully, <laughs> um, in my other course, we're reading uh, a really wonderful recent book by Scott Skinner Thompson called Privacy at the Margins. Scott is a professor at the University of Colorado, and he's written a book about the ways in which privacy rules are essential for the protection of particularly marginalized and powerless communities in our society, continuing the theme we started on, right, of privacy as being about power. But, but if you have privacy, you can resist power. So, so Scott tells a, a number of really interesting and thoughtful stories about uh, gay and queer people, about women, about Muslims, women wearing, wearing the hijab, about African-Americans uh, wearing hoodies, about people resisting surveillance by, by in CCTV by wearing masks. Uh, it's it's an academic book, um, but but I would I would highly recommend it to to people who want to think deeply about privacy and and justice and discrimination and and anti subordination. That's fascinating, Woody. One that you would recommend? Sure. So I actually the book that I have read most recently is actually Neil's book, Why Privacy Matters, which I highly recommend. But I will avoid, due to conflict of interest, I'll avoid actually <laughs> recommending that one. Um, and I will say that I'm also reading a book by uh, Ari Waldman, Industry Unbounds, The Inside Story of Privacy, Data, and Corporate Power. And it's a fascinating look into the ways in which industry is able to take ostensibly privacy-serving rules and privacy-serving narratives um, and turn them into, for their own interests, in ways that are actually corrosive to privacy in the long run. And I, I, I highly recommend it to everyone. Well, both sound fascinating. I'm going to add those to my reading list. Um, thank you both for coming on today. This is a really great conversation, and we really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Section's podcast series, To the Extent That. The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic, or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.